Jordan's uh, pulling double duty for us. Paul called in just a little bit ago and said he was sick and didn't think he was going to be able to, uh, to sing tonight. And Jordan started back up with our students. He does a great job leading music for them back there. So he did the, uh, he did the double duty for us. Um, if you would, take your Bible, and we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 26 and 27. Here in just a moment, there was a little note sheet on the back table. If, if you'd like to grab one of those, feel free, to, uh, feel free to do that. As we get ready to pray together as a church tonight, I want to let you know about a couple of things that are going on. And before we do that, is there anything that you know of that we as a church have been praying about? Uh, anything we can be praying for right now? see some folks out, it's because we have the team in Panama, so uh, be praying for our Panama team. The last picture that I saw, it looked like the structure for the roof was slowly, uh, slowly going up, and so Jim sent me a, a picture, and they're claiming that my concrete work over the summer was not flat, <laughs> was not level, so... I'm hardly taking the blame for that, but <laughs> I think they had to do a little bit of corrective work because one of the, uh, one of the posts was not sitting quite right, but they'll, they'll get it, so <laughs> it'll work out. So yeah, pray for, that, uh, pray for that Panama team. They'll be coming back on Sunday, and uh, Monday, they'll be coming back Monday. Are you counting down days before, uh, counting days? That's great. Yeah, so be, be praying for them. Anything else you know of? I know in your small groups and Sunday school classes, you all continue to pray and care for so many different people. Let me give you a heads up about a couple of things that, that you'll want to be aware of. Um, not this Sunday, but the following Sunday is our Emmaus marriage night. So February the 10th, from 5 to 7 o'clock that evening, we're doing that, that marriage night. You might think... We have too many problems. <laughs> There's no turning back. We've been married too long. We don't need to go to a marriage night. Let me encourage you to come to that for two reasons. Number one, your presence there, even if you think this doesn't seem like it's for us, your presence there is a huge encouragement to the younger couples uh, in our church who come to be a part of that. On top of that, I hope that you'll be able to serve as a table host that night as well, that when there are couples that come in, as opposed to sitting down at a table and it's awkward silence, you don't, you, know, you don't know somebody, that you'll be there and be able to care for couples. And so we need you to sign up by this Sunday for, for that event um, so we can get numbers and everything set up. But I would just really urge you to, to be a part of that. We've got more and more couples signing up for that every day, and it's going to be a good night. We have childcare uh, provided for young families, and so that'll be, that'll be part of that. So that's February the 10th, second week of February, that's coming up. Next Wednesday night, we have a neat opportunity. A man named Joel Harder, who works with something called Capital Commission. Capital Commission is, if you're familiar with Navigators Discipleship Ministry, it's a disciple-making ministry that's been popular for a couple of decades they do that for uh, state capitals. 
House of Representatives, Senate. So Joel is essentially the pastor uh, for representatives and their staff at the, uh, at the state capitol. And he is a tremendous, tremendous guy. So he's going to be here next Wednesday night uh, speaking to us. He'll do, I know he'll be willing to do some uh, question and answer with you just about what does it look like to do discipleship and evangelism at the state capitol uh, in the middle of that political world. What does that look like? Uh, and so I've been able to go up and, and do devotion with some of the, the representatives there. Joel's done an amazing job of reaching across the aisle. There's people from, from all perspectives uh, that are there, and he does a great job. He's essentially their chaplain, their, their pastor. So, so Joel will be here, which I, I really want you to be able to be a part of that. That'll be next Wednesday night. Here's the other thing I want to put in front of you. Um, next Wednesday which will be the first Wednesday night of, of the month. We're going to start, Carl is working hard on moving us in the right direction on this. We're going to meet at 4 o'clock. Is that right, Carl? 4? Okay. We're going to meet at 4 o'clock and go out in our community to do evangelism and prayer door-to-door, caring for people. Uh, we got some little cards to pass out, and so we'd love for you to come and be a part of that. Do that at 4 o'clock, have dinner, Listen to Joel. I know it's a long evening, but it will be a good day. Uh, and we're going to try to do that the first Wednesday of every month to, to go out in our community. And then we're going to mirror it with an option on Sunday night. And we're still working out the best Sunday to start for Sunday night, but we're looking to do it a Sunday night as well. But next Wednesday night, or afternoon, at 4 o'clock, uh, we're going to go out into our community and pray with people, share the gospel, um, Anything, Carl, to add to that, or just just continue to continue to um, be a part of that? So, marriage night, capital commission next Wednesday night, and then next Wednesday as well, being able to do prayer and outreach in in our community. So, I want you to know about those things. Let's pray together, specifically praying for the uh, Panama team, and then we'll do we'll do Bible study together. Yeah, thank you for Jordan being here to lead musical worship for us. God, thank you for his heart to minister to our students. And God, thank you for what you did among our teenagers during United Weekend. God, that you would continue to be at work in those relationships that were built, students who um, are continuing to grow in their faith and what it looks like to live that out at school and in their families. God, thank you for Jaron and Christine uh, for the incredible job they do of equipping uh, those who work with students and also just caring for, for our students. God, thank you for them. Thank you for the ministry to preschoolers uh, and kids that happens on Wednesday night. God, for parents who are in the trenches day after day seeking to live out the gospel in front of their kids, God, that you would strengthen those relationships. God, give them wisdom in knowing how to do that. God, thank you for the team that is in Panama. Thanks for that incredible partnership that we've been able to have there. And for Pastor Ricardo um, and all the churches that have been planted and all the work that's going to be able to be expanded because of this facility that they're putting together. God, I pray that that team will be able to get the roof on this week uh, and continue to set them up for for ministry to come. So God, continue to, to guide them. God, I pray for Emmaus, for our hearts. God, praying this afternoon just about 
desire to see people come to know and trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. God, you've used Emmaus in a lot of ways over the years. God, I pray that you would use us to see people come to know you and worship you. God, that we would be active in sharing the gospel in our communities, our neighborhoods, with people we interact with. Help us to know how to do that in a wise way, a loving way, um, an authentic way. God, thank you for for Carl and for Brandy and their family and Carl's uh, great leadership for our church with evangelism and caring for our senior adults. God, we pray for marriages in our community. God, as I hear Jim talk about the ministry he does in local schools and how many marriages are hurting, God, how difficult that is and all that comes with it, God, help us to know how to reach out into our community, God, that you would build strong marriages within our church, God, that you would bring healing in situations where that's needed. God, continue to guide us to know how to to be a part of that type of ministry. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look at Leviticus chapter 26. Now, we often do this, but particularly tonight, we're going to move around to several different sections of, of Scripture. And so, we're going to look at Leviticus 26 and 27, but there, there are plenty of things that tie in, and we want to be able to, to look at those passages. And then, this wraps up, you know, our walking through Leviticus. Joel will be here next week about uh, capital commission and politics, and then The weeks after that, we're going to tie Leviticus into Numbers and Deuteronomy and see how the whole thing fills fills itself out. So that's what we're aiming for. Chapter 26, verse 1. Here's how it starts. It says, You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Okay, that's the first two verses of chapter 26. What you immediately realize is that the Ten Commandments are all over these verses. In fact, the Ten Commandments are just all over the book of Leviticus, as you would expect. Uh, We get those Ten Commandment lists in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. But the magnitude and the purpose of the Ten Commandments gets spread out all over the first five books of of the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, you can find all ten of the Ten Commandments scattered throughout Leviticus 19. Right here in the opening two verses of chapter 26, you get the first four commands listed there. Um, End of verse 1, I am the Lord your God. Well, command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. God is saying, I am your God, there is no other. So command number one is right there. Command number two, you shall not make idols for yourself, it says at the beginning of verse one, or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. Command number two, you shall not make idols or any graven image. So there's the the other command. Now you say, I don't see anything in there about taking the Lord's name in vain. Well, that's right. But remember what we just came out of? Um, Back in chapter 24, from verses 10 
to 16, there was a whole story there about what happens when you take the Lord's name in vain. So it's been mentioned there. Then you go back to the end of chapter 22. The end of chapter 22, verse 31, it says, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not, this is chapter 22, verse 32, you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Now here's something interesting that happens in Scripture. There is a strong correlation between, strike that word, there is a strong contrast between idolatry and the name of the Lord. So the name of the Lord is set up in opposition to idols. You see this in Psalm chapter 115. That's one of the famous places. You see it in Isaiah chapter 40. But the place I want you to look at is Exodus chapter 20. So I want you to see how the contrast is set up in Scripture between the name of the Lord that would be called out and an image for a false god or an idol, the difference between those two. Exodus chapter 20, at the very beginning of that chapter, you get the, less, the list of the Ten Commandments. So that works out really well right there. You get the list of the Ten Commandments. Then you go down to chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 22. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. And then chapter 20, verse 24 in Exodus. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. Just for a second there in verse 24, if you were here last week, the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6 about how God would turn his face to the people and cause his face to shine upon them and put his name on them. That the blessing of God is put on the people of God when his name is put on them. This is the same thing that's happening here in Exodus chapter 20. Then it says in verse 25, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And then you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So God is protecting the sanctity of the situation, that nothing would be profaned. But there's a contrast between an idol, which is shaped out of material, built with human hands, and the name of God that is proclaimed by the people. Now, here's where this all starts to kind of come together. Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. It's going to be hard to get back to Leviticus 26, but we'll make it back. Okay, so... Genesis chapter 12, we're going to see a passage that I know we've read before several times, the, the call of Abram. 
Remember, Genesis chapter 11 is very much like a huge idol being built. (laughs) So the people in Genesis chapter 11 are going to build this huge tower. And they're going to build it out of rock, out of material. And it's going to look like this massive structure that's built to their greatness trying to reach to God. But actually, they profane his name by doing that. And so then you get to chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's going to bless the name of Abram as Abram proclaims the name of the Lord, and there's going to be a contrast between blessings and curses. This is set out here in Genesis 12 as the whole story is beginning. Here's why it matters. Go back to Leviticus chapter 26. I guess I should point out, back in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 2, you get a reference to the Sabbath. So there's your fourth commandment. I said the first four commandments were laid out there. No other God. Don't make idols. Don't take his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. So that's how they're all laid out there in chapter 26. Now remember Abraham and the blessing and curse distinction. Because here we go. Chapter 26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains and their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. Sounds pretty good. Sounds exactly like what God planned for his people. You could even make the case, and if you wanted to make the case, I think you're making a good argument, that you're getting Genesis 1 and 2 language here. Garden of Eden type language. I mean, you read this and it feels so good and secure and bountiful and plentiful. This is what God has planned for his people. Hold your place again in Leviticus 26. Go back to Genesis 17. Okay. Genesis 17, you have this covenant between God and Abraham that is solidified here. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Oops, 
and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. Then verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So you have this covenant that is made here that God is going to bless and multiply Abraham. Verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, this is chapter 17 in Genesis, verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So this is where God establishes that relationship between him and his people. And through that, this blessing is going to come to God's people. So Genesis 1 and 2. Oh, we get the Bible. That's all right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> if I could read like that guy, then we'd really be in business. So uh, I was listening to the book of Numbers uh, this week, going through our Route 66. I was using that Bible app, listening to the book of Numbers. It makes you feel good when even he struggles with some of those names. You can hear him like pause before he reads the name like he's working it out in his head. And so that guy's incredible. If only they would get the guy from planet Earth to read the Bible. Like that British guy that narrates planet Earth, he's my favorite. Like that guy's incredible. So, uh, um, okay, here's the connection. Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 12. Genesis 17, God is preparing what he has for his people. And Leviticus 26, he's beginning to show them more of what that's going to look like. So back to Leviticus chapter 26 for just a minute here. We're not going to read it uh, because uh, just trying to stay on track here again. But when you read Leviticus 26 and these verses we're going through, the other thing that came to my mind was Psalm 23. That imagery from Psalm 23 of how God will lead his people and provide for them and the peace that will come for that and how they don't have to fear their enemies, all of that type of language from Psalm 23, there's a pretty powerful connection between that and what you find here in Leviticus chapter 26. So back to Leviticus 26, verse 6. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. There it is again. There's that Psalm 23 language. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Again, Psalm 23. I'm going to prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. This idea of, I'm going to take care of all that. Uh, verse 9, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. What covenant? Genesis 17, Genesis 12, that same covenant with Abram. Um, verse 10, you shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. Verse 11, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you 
and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. In other words, not in the stoop position of a slave being led along, but you walk shoulders back as a free person is, is the idea there. So this language at the beginning of Leviticus 6 is, if you will be my people, if you will live in the light of my holiness, this is the life that is laid out for you. I will provide for you. You will have peace. You will have stability. You will have hope. And best of all, you get some of those material possessions laid out there at the beginning, but best of all, verse 11 that we read, I will make my dwelling among you. What does that language sound like, I will make my dwelling among you? What, what are the biblical connections there? When you hear, I will make my dwelling among you. And there's not just one. There's a series of them. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. You know what? There's an extra one. I hadn't read. Really, that is. That is good language because Ruth 1 and 4 certainly tie into that idea of the hope they'll have. Yeah, it's a good connection. What, what else? I will make my dwelling among you. Yeah, Emmanuel. God with us. Even the John's gospel version of Emmanuel, um, <laughs> that the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. Yeah, dwelt among you. Even language there, tabernacled among us. When I hear, I will make my dwelling among you, Genesis 1, Garden of Eden, live among you. Tabernacle, temple language, it's God's dwelling among his people. Jesus, God with us, I will dwell among you. The Holy Spirit, I will be with you. I will dwell in you and among you. And then all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, new creation language. I will be with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. That language going through there. Um, verse 12, I will walk among you and will be your God. That specifically sounds like Garden of Eden language. That in the cool, the Lord was walking among uh, the, the garden there with, with Adam and Eve. And so this type of personal interaction, and it, it's not a stretch. On 26.12, I will walk among you and will be your God. What did Jesus do? He walked among the people. He didn't stay distant from his people. He walked among his people. And, and so again, that, that type of language is there. Now, you get to verse 13. The story is beautiful. The story is perfect. How could it possibly go wrong? Surely that's going to be the path that we pick. And then verse 14. Just a reminder, this is two ways theology. You can go this way or you can go this way. Verse 14. But, here we go. If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commands, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant at the end of verse 15, then I will do this to you. Okay, so opening verses, if you go down this path, 
It's looking really good. <laughs> good life that God's planned for you. But if you go down this path, it's not going to look so good, as we're going to find in the coming verses. This type of, um, this type of approach plays itself out in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, specifically the book of Proverbs. You get a lot of this language. You can go down this path and it's going to lead to life. You can go down this path and it's going to lead to death. You fast forward that to the New Testament and it sounds like this, that whoever hears these words of mine and keeps them is like a man who built his house on a rock Rain came down, rivers rose, wind beat against the house, but it didn't fall because it was built on the rock. But the one who hears these words of mine and doesn't keep them, it's like the man who built his house on the sand. Rain came down, rivers rose, wind beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. That type of two ways language starts here in Leviticus. You find an example of it in Deuteronomy. It's all over Proverbs. It's all over the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, you can see elements of it in James in the New Testament, which also follows a lot of this two ways wisdom language. So, verse 16, I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Uh, think of this as almost the undoing of creation. So the first verses were establishing Genesis 1 and 2. This is the beauty and the peace that you're called into when you follow my ways. If you don't, it's almost like you can see creation being rolled back. Everything that God planned for his people is being reversed and rolled back on itself. Verse 17, I will set my face against you. What's that? It's the exact opposite of the priestly blessing from number six that we talked about, that my face and my name will be upon you. This, I will set my face against you. You shall be struck down before your enemies. No table in front of your enemies now. Now you're going to be struck down. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. Isn't that a funny phrase? So earlier, you need five guys to chase 100 or 100 to chase 10,000. Now you're running away from a ghost. You're running away from nobody. Um, this is your kid that comes running into your room late at night screaming that, you know, something, and then it runs your whole night of sleep, and there's nobody there. You're scared by nothing. That's exactly what happens here when they turn against the, turn against the Lord. There's just nothing like being woken up by a scared child in the middle of the night. Well, there goes that night. Might as well just wake up and start work. So if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Verse 19, I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Man, once again, like just the language of that. Uh, think of Genesis chapter 3, one of the curses that the people faced is that they would work really hard and not get much food from, from the land. Um, this idea there that the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit, Psalm chapter 1 type language. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Again, every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. All, all of that's at work here. 21, 
Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. Verse 23. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and my, I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Again, that seven repetition that uh, we've come to expect. Verse 25, I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant, and if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall break your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. There's a passage that Jesus picks up on in the New Testament where he becomes the bread of life who alone is able to, to satisfy. Verse 27, If in spite of all this you will still not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Now, 29 is is graphic language, I know. So, um, You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Graphic, yes, but you actually find evidence that this, in fact, happens with the downfall of the people and the siege of Jerusalem and everything that goes down. That exact language is used again. Um, and I will destroy your high places, verse 30, and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be desolation. And your cities shall be a waste. By this point, in verse 33, uh, if your reaction's like mine, you almost, what's the, how you put, you almost want to stop reading. Like, okay, it's too much, too much. Like, please, like, let's, let the, the force of this that builds up. And then in verse 34, then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. This is God's way of saying, you didn't give the land Sabbath when you lived in there, so I'm going to get rid of you, and then the land will finally have its rest. Not while you're living in it, but while you're away, but at least it will get a chance to rest. 35, as long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbath when you were dwelling in it. Um, and as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts and the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. You hear the cowardice again there. And they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another, as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. 38, you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers shall not rot away like them. Okay, what's going on there? Um, we need to pick up the fact that with these punishments and disciplines that are mentioned here, you see a progressive nature that they obviously end worse than, than they start off. 
And there's actually a five-fold, if you caught as we were going through, five different times God pronounces a certain series of punishments and disciplines on the people. Interestingly, this same five-fold discipline or punishment is repeated by the prophet Amos. So it's like when God comes to his people, he says, this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't respond, this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't respond, (laughs) you know, you count to three apparently with your kids. God counts to five, I guess, here in like dealing with this. One chance, like if you don't do it, this is what's going to happen. It has a progressive way of working itself out, this five-fold repetition. It doesn't feel like it, I realize when you, when you read it. It doesn't feel like it, but there's mercy baked in to these verses. It's not, you broke my covenant, immediately cut off. It is discipline to lead back. Why does this matter? You go to the end of your Bible, or very close to the end, to 2 Peter chapter 3. This language will fa- sound pretty familiar to you. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. When we start to think about God's patience and mercy toward his people, um, certainly Hebrews 12 is helpful there when it talks about how God only disciplines those he loves. It's always to lead us to, to repentance. But 2 Peter chapter 3 is really what what stood out to me. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things, in verse 11, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Back in verse 9, that idea that the Lord is not slow to keep his promise, but he's patient, not wishing any should perish, but all should reach repentance. You see elements of that in Leviticus chapter 26 with how he dwells with his people. Back in Leviticus 26, this is laid out in starting in verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity... And the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. Look, listen to this language in the beginning of, or the middle of 41, 26, 41. If then their uncircumcised heart, why does that matter? Well, that stretches all the way back to Genesis 17, where all of this got started. If their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. Then I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. 43, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. 
44. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. You know, when you read through the Old Testament, it's true, and in a straightforward way, that God often seems um, wrathful, just, because he is. But in all that, you can't miss God's mercy and compassion and overwhelming patience with us. It is so incredible that even in the midst of all you see, all this patience. Now, what I want to show you as we wrap up is how this actually works itself out in the life of the people. And to see that, you have to go over to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah can sometimes be a little tricky to find. It's just before you start to get to Psalms. Sometimes it's easier to go to Psalms and turn back to the left, or Job and turn back to the left to find Nehemiah. But I want us to read out of Nehemiah chapter 9, because what you get there is you get the outcome of Leviticus chapter 26. Because, spoiler alert, the people, as they head into the land, don't do so well. They, uh, they struggle. Um, and all those great blessings that God has laid out for them, they experience some of them, but more often they find themselves turning against the covenant, breaking the covenant, and much of what God says will happen is exactly what happens. So, they go into the promised land, don't do well, they face exile, and they go into their land, the land of their enemies. Even there, God doesn't forget them, and he raises up, ultimately, men like Ezra and Nehemiah. While they're coming back into the land, the law is rediscovered. And they read the law and they realize, oh my word, how far have we gotten away from where God wants us to be? Nehemiah chapter 9, you get the people confessing their sin. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves. This is Nehemiah 9, verse 2. The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. It mentions the Levites, whose names I'm not going to read there, but it mentions them. They said in verse 5, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And listen to what they say in verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you 
and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Verse 9 down through 14 talks about how God brought the people out of Egypt, brought them toward Sinai, set the laws before them. Look down in verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck their neck and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. 21, skip down to 21. 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them to every corner. They took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. Down in verse 26. Actually, look at the end of verse 25. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the land of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the land of their enemies. But after they had rest, in verse 28, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Verse 31, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You hear this continue to work itself out over and over again. Verse 32, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. 33, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, amid your great goodness that you gave them, in the large and rich land you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. This is in verse 36. We are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. We're slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. 
Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. And then you find the people reestablishing before the Lord this covenant that he's made with them. Here's what I would hope you would take from the end of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26. A book that's full of all these laws that seem so irrelevant sometimes and frankly sometimes boring. What's, what's happening in this book? God is pointing his people toward the way that leads to life. The life that he has designed and planned for them. If they don't follow that way, there's a way that leads to destruction. But even then, he proves himself faithful and merciful and patient and compassionate. Why? Because in the New Testament, we find the phrase that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. As we think about our own hearts, as we think about our church, as we think about the world around us, that the kindness and patience and mercy of the Lord would lead us to repentance. That we would say, God, your way is right. Your way leads to life. We will follow that way wherever it leads. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the book of Leviticus. God, thank you for how rich it's been to, to study. Um, the way that it is so interconnected with everything else that we find in your word. That the only way that we can be in your presence, the only way we can ascend the hill of the Lord, is through clean hands and pure hearts. And that only comes through sacrifice. And we're able to have that holiness because of the sacrifice of Jesus. God, let us be reminded that when we hear his words and keep them, it's a way that leads to life. But God, we're also reminded that that way is narrow, that that path is small. And so God, I pray that our hearts would be committed to you. God, thank you for your forgiveness. God, even as we pray about being a church where people come to know and trust Jesus, God, I feel the weight that that only happens when we're also a church that is constantly repenting, God, constantly experiencing that revival that you bring in our hearts throughout a church and relationships. God, would you bring that revival that leads to salvation? God, would you purify us as your people so that we are ready to walk in the way that you have set before us? And we know that we're only able to do that because of Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.